Hi there. Welcome to Just To Be Nominated, a podcast about movies distributed by Lee Enterprises. The show is hosted by me, Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee, along with Bruce Miller, an entertainment reporter for multiple decades who is currently the editor of the Sioux City Journal, and Jared McNett, a reporter for the Globe Gazette in Mason City, Iowa. This Sunday is Mother's Day, so we thought it would be fun to have a little back and forth about the best and worst moms ever to grace the silver screen. Before we get to that, we hash out a few news items, including Paddington 2, unseating Susan Cain as the freshest film ever certified over at Rotten Tomatoes, and we also follow up on our Oscars coverage now that Soderbergh is out there giving interviews about the goings-on behind the scenes at the ceremony. Please let us know what you think in the review section of the show wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure you're subscribed if you are not already. Now, here it is. Our show kicks off after this short pause. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, We can jump directly into this thing. Uh, We have Bruce Miller for the Sioux City Journal here. Say hey, Bruce. Hey. Uh, And we have Jared McNett out in Mason City, Iowa for the Globe Gazette. Hello, let's, uh, let's talk about some moms. We're going to talk about some moms. Uh, but first, yeah, we, we just mentioned uh, some of the stuff that's happened in the past week, one of which is uh, Paddington 2. What, did, did Paddington 2 overtake Orson yes. Welles? Or did, did some critic drop their, their score of Citizen Kane on Rotten Tomatoes and therefore it dropped down? They found some 80-year-old, like, article that, like, panned Citizen Kane. And so Rotten Tomatoes, like, recalculated their score. And now Citizen Kane only has a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes, whereas Paddington 2 has a perfect 100% and therefore is the greatest movie that has ever been made. But how, how would people who are writing reviews now have even included a review of Citizen Kane in their compilation for Rotten Tomatoes. They would all have one for Paddington too if they're critics who are working today. So the idea that, you know, come on, they're not reviewing old movies. And if they are, they're either stealing them from some kind of paper they wrote for college or they're trying to go off somebody else's opinion because face it, Citizen Kane is not being reviewed now. Mank would be a more likely one to put in there because it's about Citizen Kane. But if you want to go that direction, Mank won more Oscars than Citizen Kane. So there you go. I hate this. All of this just makes my skin crawl. <laughs> you know, but that's part of it is the, the gamification of, of these, you know, reviewer score type things. And, and you're right, Bruce. No one's really writing about older films in the same way, you know, that they're writing about other stuff. Uh, I mean, you look at, I mean, Roger Ebert used to be able to, you know, give, I don't know how many different reviews to La Ventura or, you know, some other, you know, old like Antonioni retrospective type thing, or maybe, you know, some of the AD club guys. Uh, but I don't know if those even necessarily count for Rotten Tomatoes stuff, but that's, it's no fun. It's no fun. Uh, what is fun is the, Crazy Oscars. 
who uh, last episode we talked about the fallout from the Oscars, and we've got a week, uh, a couple weeks since then to have percolated, and we've got Soderbergh coming out and basically saying like they did everything that they had to do, and he wouldn't do anything different. He won't be invited back next year to do it again. Well, I don't think he, I mean, this seems like he's towing the, the, the company line, which is good. I mean, you can't come out and say we were all in on Bozeman, but it's also you can't have Bozeman win and then still have two more awards to go. You know, though, we're in a, a time when people love to be indignant. They love to find something to be upset about. And if he wanted to switch it to the end, that was his prerogative. But then immediately there are people who are crying, oh, this has never been done and you can't do this. And I can't believe you've even thought of doing that. Well, he did it. And it is what it is. I think we sometimes, especially that online entertainment writing community, they get on a, they all get on the same horse and start galloping with it and think that there is something here. There isn't. There isn't anything there. It's just a guy decided to do, or a trio decided to do a different way of producing the Oscars. And they've allowed many people the opportunity to do it, and they have. And people didn't like it. End of story. Does that mean next year it's going to be the same thing? It could be, but this isn't written in stone anywhere. But um, I can't even... You see that written so many times in a stupid blog or in a in some stray column, you know. And I, and as long as I'm railing, okay, because we deal in these kinds of things. You're feeding into the hot take culture that you're decrying, Bruce. <laughs> I am tired of these people who are trying to get a click by putting on one of those um, those web heads that make you kind of what I can't believe this, and that's all they're doing. And then they jaw on for how many screens about something that really they have no background in, they have no resources in. There's a lot of that out there. And I really wish that everybody wasn't given a voice. Everybody doesn't give a voice in some of those cases. A perfect example of that was, I don't remember what publication it was, but they had a list ranking all of the uh, Oscar winners for best picture. And one of the entries, it literally just said they didn't see the movie and like, if you're gonna do some like clickbaity type like stunt like that where you're like we rank all of the oscar winners and you don't even do the work of like watching all of the movies it's just kind of pathetic yeah i think that was an av club article it's one of those things where they all get on the horse and then they think we oh we must this is a, a great idea but you're right they don't want to put in the work that it takes to really measure them up you know, I, I don't think I, I've seen all of them. I have seen all of the movies going back so far. I can't remember the first movies I've, I've seen. And I would never do that without going back and doing the, the homework that you need to do. If you're going to do the best 10 best pictures of the decade, you should watch all of the best pictures that are nominated for a decade. But I mean, none of this is going anywhere as long as social media algorithms are favoring anything that just you know gets people's blood boiling uh and it's not at anyone's interest on their end to to fix that well and their worth is measured in clicks that's how it goes you know 
So it is what it is. Just know that this is not the definitive list from anybody. It's not, it's merely something that they think it's like popcorn. You don't really need it, but you'll eat it at the movies because it's something. And that's what these little articles or columns are. And even what we do, it's not the, the gospel according to St. Bruce. Don't tell them that. That's not true. That's not, no, this is, this is what you need to listen to. It makes you a better person. Meanwhile, can I just tell everybody who's listening, Jared is drinking out of like some Mason jar. So I don't know if it's, um, is this a uh, water thing? What is no this? Water. What's with the jar? Are you making jug juice at home or something or what? Jug juice? I drink a lot of water in a day. I'm a well hydrated, uh, well hydrated man. So I need a bigger sized uh, water container. Oh, so it's the, do you need a, do you need a, a drinking thing? Can I give you one? If I send you one, will you be all right with it? No, those, I, I don't ever use water bottles. I mostly hate water bottles. So it's more just containers like this. So just stick with the Mason jar because in Mason city, we use Mason jars, right? <laughs> Correct. Sorry, I, I digress there for a minute. Perfectly fine. Um, Jared, you're getting, I'm getting a lot of buzzing from you. I don't know if that's- It's his Nomadland van. Speaking of, of Nomadland, uh, we've got Francis McDormand, who we're going to jump into. We each picked three best movies that have mothers, or three like of, of the best mother characters, uh, and then also three uh, of the worst mother characters. And we're just going to kind of go around talking about all that. And I can jump in uh, and hopefully not like necessarily snatching anybody's right now but speaking of Frances McDormand I'm going to go with Almost Famous as one of the best depictions of of a mother I think uh, her as the mother in in Almost Famous uh, she was very lovely um, and caring and a little bit claustrophobic maybe but there you go so that is one of my picks for one of the best mother characters one of the worst mother characters uh, to back that up I'm going to go with I, Tanya. Oh, that's good. That's a yeah. good one. With um, Alice and Janney really going full method, I suppose, with uh, the bird on her shoulder. And uh, I think we all know how, how that story uh, ended with, uh, <laughs> with Tanya Harding. So yeah, Alice and Janney in I, Tanya as Tanya Harding's mother. Those are good picks. Those are yeah. very good picks. Yeah. So why don't you... Uh, you can jump in next, Bruce. You want a good or a bad, or do you want them both? Is that what we're going with? Let's do them both. Okay. My all-time favorite bad mom is, of course, Faye Dunaway as Mommy Dearest. I mean, I can recite lines from that thing. If you ever need one, I got it. It's, that's how much I've seen that movie. And it's, you know, if you give it a different look, if you look at it from a different perspective, it's not this kind of campy thing it really is a sad story about a woman if it had been edited differently it might have been a different film and she might not have gotten beaten up about it but she's a great bad mom because i love when the kids say strap yourself in and she's all like come on we must we must dig up the lawn now it's time come no no how many times must i do this and then of course the ultimate no wire hangers so Come on, you can't get better than that as a bad mom. Um, Went on to become a camp classic. Yeah, and, and that's how people view it. But now I think for me, it's just greatest hits. You look for it and 
And whenever I'm doing something where it involves like a television station, I will use her line, get the goddamn cue cards up. Um, <laughs> when you can't read it right, because it's like, Mommy dearest knew exactly what you wanted to do with that. So that's, she's one of my favorite worst ones. And um, I think in a lot of ways, Faye Dunaway has been wrongly accused of making a really bad movie. And she, she really put it all out there. And I think she was just betrayed in some of the other parts of it, in the editing, in the, in the way it was uh, directed. There are a lot of a lot of blame can be placed on somebody else, but she fully committed to that. And I bought her as jo as Joan Crawford. She seemed just like her. Um, so that's my my worst mom, best mom. This is an interesting one because I tried to think. Well, we're going to put some of the same ones on Sophie in Sophie's Choice. When you have to make a decision like she has to make, and she was just so loving to just everybody, and and Stingo when she's talking about him going out, and I, I, I love that. I love that. I'm so glad that she won the Oscar for it because it probably, in my mind, is Meryl Streep's best work. Um, you did not see Meryl Streep putting on an accent or playing a role. She's very good at that. She's very good at using the artifice that creates a role. And I think this one she brought out of herself and it became um, a character unlike any other that she played. Good picks. I mean, I figured we would, I figured we, we would end up with Meryl Streep on here in some capacity. So Sophie's choice. Jared. Uh, so I'll, I'll go, I'll go best, uh, first one of my picks, uh, which I only saw recently for the first time as I've been on my very slow watch through of all of, um, Martin Scorsese's, uh, uh, movies is, uh, Ellen Burstyn as Alice Hyatt and Alice doesn't live here anymore. Um, probably the archetypal, like working class mom in a movie that I can think of, like basically throughout the movie, she's just dealing with a string of, like not great uh, men in her life um, who are just either abusive or just like generally um, loudish. And all while she's having to deal with a kind of rotten uh, kid. And then on top of that, trying to work like some pretty intensive jobs, including like, you know, a pretty terrible job at a diner where she's working like insane hours every day. But um, somehow she like manages all of that and is still like a like fundamentally decent person uh throughout that movie and it's a, a great one if you haven't seen it definitely an all-time uh mom performance um and then my first pick for uh worst moms uh is gonna go with uh jennifer coolidge as a uh, stifler's mom in the american pie series um I feel like if, uh, as a parent, you're constantly trying to have sex with your, your child's uh, friends, that puts you on a bad list. Yeah, the mother as a uh, sex object was something interesting that I think I confronted while, uh, you know, kind of cobbling together stuff for this list. Even something like uh, Happy Hogan, having having a real thing for aunt may in uh in in the most recent spider-man movies um and yeah which i guess she's technically an aunt but anyway she plays a role of a mother yes very matriarchal and then um yeah and ellen burston 
I, when I was thinking about either good or bad, I didn't actually add this, but Requiem for a Dream, her, uh, her, her role as the mother in that was kind of the <laughs> going a different direction. That's a, yeah, that's the dark side of uh, moms for Ellen Burstyn. For sure. She wasn't exactly a loving one in the, in the movie with um, Vanessa Kirby that was this year. Oh, um, not Portrait of a Woman. Pieces of a piece pieces of a woman. Yeah. 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 So she's good at playing kind of nuanced mothers. Yeah. So um I speaking of of I guess, you know, bad moms uh and you know, kind of going after younger folks, I think I'm gonna maybe maybe fly a little close to the sun here, and I'm gonna say back to the future. Because even though it was unintentional and she didn't know, yeah, I feel like that whole aspect of the film is still overlooked a little bit. I mean, I think Back to the Future is a perfect movie, but anything where part of the tension is, oh man, is this mom accidentally going to hook up with her kid? <laughs> like, is is a there's a certain like toxic element to that that the movie somehow makes work um and so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna file that under bad mom <laughs> but with with the caveat of you know it wasn't her fault <laughs> that's one if you went to the movie with your mom you'd go kind of oh god do i say anything about this this is creepy yeah yeah that's a we could do a whole list of awkward movies that we've watched with with parents maybe or other other folks uh, and yeah, that's that would be one. Watching that with a mom would be a little a uh, little much. And then for good mom, I am going to do Laurie Metcalf as Marion McPherson in Lady Bird, who is the maybe one of the best examples of someone just trying their best. Like she is so caring and loving and just fighting such an uphill battle with Sarsha Ronan's Ladybird character. And it, yeah, just tremendous work from Laurie Metcalf, who given that she was on Roseanne, I think people kind of forget that she had had a background in, was it the actor's studio? What was the- um, Steppenwolf. Steppenwolf, that's it. You know, that she comes from a, you know, some real solid theater stock. So, uh, yeah, Laurie Metcalf as Good Mom. They, I, I love Lady Bird, and I think that was the movie that finally made me realize that I've, like, gotten to a point now where I uh, identify more and empathize more with, like, the parents in any of these coming-of-age movies and the kids, where I'm just like, this is a rotten child, and these, these parents are just trying to do the best they can. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a sign of adulthood, is I think the first step is realizing you can't blame your parents for, for everything, and then the second step is seeing that and being like, man, I, I was, I made some mistakes and I, <laughs> you know. Have you gotten to the point where you start saying lines that your mother or your father said? Yes. Not too many. Not yet. No. Okay. Get ready. Cause they come. And then you think, because I said, so that's why you're using the lines that they would pull on you. Right. All the time and you think, oh my God, what is this? Um, I definitely have a lot that I, um, I mean, more like 
it's better to need it and not have it, or it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. That's one that I use a lot that I think I got from my dad. It's the, you know, little witticisms or what would you call those? Yeah, we'll go with witticisms. Sure. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, my mom would always say, whenever I ask for anything, she'd go, I'm not made of money. All you want is the God almighty dollar out of me. And so it did shut me up. But... <laughs> So now I have friends who are using it on their kids. So just know if you heard it, it came from my mom. All right, you need a bad one and a good one. Bad one and a good one. I The good one I'm going to pick is Leanne Tui, uh, played by uh, Sandra Bullock in The Blind Side. Um, not because we see that movie every other day on one of the cable channels, but because I really think she does, she's your advocate. And um, mothers come in all different kinds. Um, it could be a friend mother. It could be your biological mother. It could be your adoptive mother. But here's a woman who I think what we all want is somebody who is going to be our advocate. And that's who Leanne Tui was. And um, even though there have been books and articles and all that that say, oh, the movie wasn't really right. I want to believe it was right. I want to believe that's how it was. And I want to believe that she did bring him into a loving home and tried to help him become the best he is. And hey, when you look at it now, he made the pros. There had to be something there that helped push him. So she's my good mom. Um, bad mom, I'm digging way far back. In fact, I can't even remember uh, all of the movie. That's how bad it is. Um, throw mama from the train, Ann Ram. She made me want to do the things to her that really <laughs> so. And she was good. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, too, for that. So that was a cool thing. But yeah, bad mom. She's a bad mom for me. Yeah. And she would also qualify as maybe a bad mom from The Goonies. Right. She played that kind of evil character in a lot of things. Yeah. Throw Mama from the Train is, I don't know if I would say it's underrated, but I would say that it is forgotten. And it is one of those movies from the 80s that is very rewatchable and very solidly made and it's it's an original thing I don't, I don't think it's an adaptation but yeah it's uh fantastic you know here's the thing that goes wrong is that they always get this idea we've got to remake things no we don't just give more attention to the original one put it in a put it in a theater you know give it that kind of display or that that billboarding and people will realize how truly good some of these old films really were. Mm -hmm. um, but even now, they've been talking about doing another round as a an American film. I don't want that. I not no. Don't do that. Let it be no. what it is, and come up with a new idea on your own. If nothing else, um, whether or not Throw Mama from the Train is underrated as a movie, I will say Danny DeVito underrated as a director because. Uh, Death to Smoochie, also very rewatchable. Um, Hoffa is a good watch. Uh, I know a lot of kids like Matilda, or did like Matilda. I don't know if kids today are still watching Matilda. But uh, Danny DeVito, underrated as a director. And you I know, agree. when he was in Cuckoo's Nest, nobody thought he'd ever get work. That would be like one and done. And heck, he got part after part after part and then he got the opportunity to direct, there's a good career. That's a career that was well-realized and you didn't think it was gonna be there. 
We uh, we stand a a short king from New Jersey. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, my uh my next uh tandem uh going to the '90s again. Uh, got a classic. It had to be on the list somewhere for one of us for best. Uh, Linda Hamilton as uh, Sarah Connor, specifically in Terminator Two. Uh, Judgment Day. I mean, if you're uh, fighting machines uh, for your son, uh, I'd say that puts you on a pretty good uh, list. And also just seems like a pretty uh, cool mom. I know she's in an insane asylum at the beginning of the movie, but we'll look past that. Um, Sarah Connor, very cool mom and uh, a mom more than willing to kick some ass too. Absolutely. That was on my on my short list. <laughs> So who's in your bad one there, Jared? It's got to be somebody from a horror film. There's got to be a bad mom there. That's that's coming up later. Um, this one pains me, though, because um, it is a, well, I don't know why it pains me, but it's a, a movie that I like, uh, two movies that I like a lot, um, but I have to do it. And this is actually another person from uh, the whole uh, cast of uh, characters from Christopher Guest uh, movies. Uh, Catherine O'Hara as uh, Kate McAllister in Home Alone and Home Alone to uh lost in new york you could say she's a good mom because like someone even tells her that in the second movie but you lost your kid two different times in like two different cities probably scarring him for the rest of his life so that automatically puts you on a a a bad list why isn't it a bad dad why is it mom's well that too the dad is also they're both terrible parents They should have been raised by Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci, right? Yeah, that, that's a movie with terrible parents, terrible aunts, terrible uncles, terrible cousins, just terrible family. Yep. Terrible sweaters. That was another bad thing in it. It's true. Yeah, I mean, Home Alone, it... One of the things that I realized putting together a list like this with moms was it's it's not a experience that is explored very much. Like I was scrolling through the you know most popular films on Letterboxd and you can go pretty far with you know only hitting a handful of mother focused movies, be them really good or really bad and not just having it you know be an aspect of the plot. Um, and yeah, which something like Home Alone, motherhood is not at the forefront of it, but the connection that he has to his mother is way more uh, pronounced than it is his, Kevin's connection to his father. So, yeah. And is it ever is it ever said what either of his parents do for work? No, not yeah, at all. I just realized that. I just realized that I've seen those movies, both of those movies so many times. And yeah, I just realized I don't think it's ever incredibly clear what they do for a living. <laughs> yeah. Well, they could afford tickets, plane tickets for all those people. Come on. Yeah. And having the, the, the shuttle come all the way from, <laughs> from right. O'Hare to pick them up in uh, <laughs> wherever they, whatever. The, like suburbs. the nicest part of Chicago, a giant house in a nice part of Chicago. Oh, yeah. It's what, Edgerton or something? I can't think of any of the suburbs. Oh, I've got a kid. Okay. I guess that happens. I better fly back right away, first class, to get the child. Nah, I think I, I would ride it out. I would just call the neighbors and say, check on him. I think he's over there, but I'm not sure. Yeah, but clearly the money wasn't in the family because Uncle Frank has to stoop to <laughs> stealing silver and china from the uh, from the airplane. 
that will always make me laugh no matter what one of the pettiest things in any movie ever just a a, a grown man stealing silverware yeah he's an airplane you don't even get silverware from an airplane anymore no no, no. you he's don't the get reason why. yeah, yeah he the, uh, because that's why we can't have good things anymore on planes <laughs> he did it he did it to us so it's back to me um I don't know if I'm going to be stealing something from you, Bruce, in one of these next two. I've got, I got a handful of options here. And I think I'm going to go Bad Mom, Carrie, the movie Carrie, not, not Carrie herself. Um, yeah, the mom was bad. The mom was very bad and bad in a way like she did to moms what the shark in Jaws did for swimming. Like there is, I mean, she's just pure worst case scenario, you know, maternal scarring going on there uh, with, yeah, it's just awful. Absolutely awful. Nightmarish stuff. And she was just uh, trying to instill some uh, sense of, of faith in her, in her child. You're being, yeah. You're being yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You're being unfair to Margaret. (laughs) So, yes. And then the good one, one, I'm going to go with, this might be a little bit of a curveball here. I'm going to say the movie Booksmart. And Lisa Kudrow as the mother in Booksmart is one of my favorites. It is this... uh, Kind of very chipper, woke, but not in a in any kind of garish way, I suppose. Um, but yeah, Lisa Kudrow in Booksmart, wonderful mother, great little parental unit with Lisa Kudrow and Will Forte as the parents. Don't they try to be a little too hip, and they kind of fall short? But it it rings so perfectly parental, and it's not. You, you you get the sense that like they don't they don't need to do that. It's not so much that it's annoying because it's fake. It's like they're they're already connected to their daughter as much as they're they're going to be at that age. Did your parents ever try to be kind of hip with your friends? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would not they really with to... my friends? No, no. Would they ever say anything like when they came over, or would they give them the the ninth degree on anything well uh my mom uh once drove me and some of my friends around to tp other people's houses so all right yeah mom i i like her she sounds like somebody i could be friends with so good yeah that's a that's that's a that's a bit much maybe but it's good stuff how dare you chris did you have that at all chris did you have anything like where they go Oh, I bet we're going to play Nintendo tonight, huh? You know, I'm just like, what are you talking about? Nintendo. Oh, um, you see what I mean. I had probably the the peak of something like that was I had a friend stay over one night for a birthday, and part of it was my dad drove us to Taco Bell at midnight because why not? So yeah, midnight run to Taco Bell as a middle schooler 
uh, was, you know, really crazy. So I like that. And it was open. Yep. And he, yeah. And I also, I remember being shocked that he knew who Eddie Vedder was around like the same kind of era, you know, like around like versus and maybe, maybe like Vitology had come out and he mentioned something about like Eddie Vedder. And I was like, oh man, like this is so weird that my dad knows pop culture stuff. And in reality, I mean, come on. (laughs) He he had a subscription to Rolling Stone like anybody else. (laughs) Yeah, I always found it, you know, when I started doing entertainment writing, it was always so weird when my parents would ask, now tell me about this one. Is she really like that? And be somebody, whoever was in the news at the time. And I thought they pay attention to this stuff. They care about this stuff. And so they love the dish. They love to hear about all the dark kind of juicy things that I might've heard. So that was, that was always fun, but there you go. Okay, you ready for me? Um, I could pick Debbie Reynolds and Mother to fit in both categories, but I'm not gonna pick that. I'm gonna pick Norman Bates's mother as my bad mom because man, she really screwed that kid up. And um, I watched, it was on a Turner Classic during the uh, 30 days of Oscar or whatever it was. It is scarier than heck. And when you watch it, Near the end, in just like a two-second bit, you see Ted Baxter, the guy who, uh, Ted Knight, who played Ted Baxter on the Mary Tyler Moore show. He's like a jailer. And he just grabs Norman and goes in, and that's it. But it's really fun to see the how Hitchcock did it. Watch it now, not just for the shower scene, but the way they, that he makes you believe the mom is right there. It's, it's fascinating how that kind of pull that you have, it's... It's there. And then um, for a good mom, you know, this is going to be cheap and cheesy, but we get it how many times a year? Maria Von Trapp in um, Sound of Music. Because how many times is mom going to make your curtain close? Not that often. And then teach you how to sing so that you can then have a career later on signing autographs at a celebrity signing show. I mean, there you go. What would the uh, the modern version of of the sound of music be? Would it be a family of? Would it be one of the uh, like the viral um, family like, of TikTokers? I was thinking the like the YouTube families that the Kardashians, the ones that are just like sponsored by Nerf, you know, like the yeah. Kardashians are all entrepreneurs and they all are billionaires and they've all got a makeup line. Yeah, but. They don't really, I mean, I don't necessarily know how much of that is because of the uh, Avon Trap person. Um, I think I was thinking more, more, more just along the lines of like they had the singing competitions or the singing, you know, festival circuit that they were on. Um, and yeah, it would have to be some kind of TikTok or whatever. They'd be selling, you know, the um, what the the tummy tea, whatever. <laughs> Uh, the the glow today's lights. trap family today's trap family is uh, Jake and Logan Paul. Oh boy! Well, that just oh well, man. <laughs> but you could pick the Jonas Brothers. That would be one where they're kind of pushing, and then Frankie, the bonus Jonas, is all upset because he really didn't get to have the life he wanted because they trumped him with it. So bonus Jonas. <laughs> Did you know about Frankie the bonus Jonas? Yeah, oh. he's the fourth Jonas brother. And he was supposed to have his own kind. He was sort of like Donnie Osmond back in the day where they're the Osmond brothers. And then Donnie came around and Donnie kind of got a career of his own. He didn't have to sit with the brothers and sing. 
And that was Frankie was going to go in that direction too. He was going to have his own little career. And then the brothers just kind of screwed it for him. So no sound of music life for him, but he gets to write the disgruntled book. So that's always good. I'm glad we're getting Frankie Jonas knowledge today. Would he be Billy, Daniel, or Stephen Baldwin? Oh, there's four of them. Um, I mean, Alec, we, we're not going to. Yeah, no, he's gonna... the best of the Baldwin brothers. Absolutely. Stephen. Stephen. Yeah. Because yeah. even that Daniel, the older one, got work. Um, Stephen was in Biodome. Stephen, though, is basically known for being now uh, Justin Bieber's father-in-law. That's about his only, and religious. He's religious. Those are his two credits. Yeah. Those are, and you know what? He is, he is the nicest of the Baldwin brothers. I really think he is. I like Well, that's not, that's not much of a competition, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had, I had Alec Baldwin yell at me once, and he said, why would you ask a question like that? Well, you ask a question like that because you want to know the answer. That's why you ask a question like that. And any question is a fair question. You don't have to answer it if you're being asked the question, but I can ask you any question I want. You have the right to say no. What was the, uh, do you remember what the question was? Oh, it's harmless. Come on. I thought he was good in those days. So, you know, but it, it takes you back because you think there should be some kind of decorum. Um, you know, and it, come on, it was set up. It was not even a, one of those things where I'm grabbing them on the streets at the airport and saying, Hey, why are you doing this? And what's wrong with that? It was just, it was in a, in the course of a, uh, an interview. I think it was for streetcar named desire. He was doing it as a TV movie and he kind of fights back. And you think, what was that all about? It was no reason. So I think it says more about his personality than anything. So the sound of music, sound of music. So and you see teens. To Alec Baldwin and the uh, Cyruses are also a family now that are are kind of mining that. Let's see how many of them we can put out there. Oh yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Right. Noah, Miley. So Jared. I'll do I'll do worst uh, or bad mom uh, first. Horror film. Horror a, film. It is. It is. Uh, and uh, not only did this uh, particular bad mom. Uh, basically uh, let her son drown in a lake. She then uh, murdered a bunch of camp counselors who had very little to do with her son drowning in a lake. And so uh, Pamela Voorhees, Jason Voorhees' his mom in the Friday the 13th movies, played by uh, Betsy Palmer, goes on the all-time uh, bad mom list for, again, just letting her son drown and then murdering a bunch of teen camp counselors. You know, it was so, that was one of those kind of bait and switch things because Betsy Palmer was known for doing uh, game shows on TV. She did What's My Line and, and I've Got a Secret and all those kinds of shows. And she was like this perfect, very kind of fun, you know, you thought there was no hidden agenda there. And you wouldn't suspect her of being a bad mom. And then you see her in Friday the 13th, you go, oh my God, it's a switch. Look what they did. Yeah. Before before Friday the 13th, she hadn't been in like a movie in like like 12 years or something like that. Some ridiculous amount of time. And then she pops up in an all-time great uh, horror movie uh, role as uh, one of the worst moms possible. 
Um, and then Good Mom, um, there's a couple of ones that I wanted to just um, toss out. Um, uh, you know, being a huge uh, Simpsons head, uh, got to go with Marge Simpson for one in the Simpsons movie, which uh, deserves to be recognized for dealing with a truly awful family. We're gonna. Um, I'm not gonna allow that. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna put the kibosh on Marge Simpson. Not that she is. I mean, she is a good mother, but way more known for TV than film. Well, good. I'm. I'm just throwing that one out. That was one. I was. You know, it was. Uh, it was on the short list. Uh, we'll. We'll. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll call it a foul tip. How about that? And we can. And then another one I had on the the short list was uh, Patricia Arquette as um, Olivia in Boyhood. Um, kind of more in like the the Alice doesn't live here anymore type of role again of just a uh, a striver um, type of mother just trying to do the best for uh, her kid. Is, I'm trying to do the best I can. Isn't there some line like that that she says? Yeah, pretty much almost exactly that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, another one more recently I was tempted to include also was uh, actually Kathy Bates as Richard Jewell's mom and Richard Jewell, which is a good, uh, solid uh, Kathy Bates performance. But the one I wanted to pick, and it uh, kind of ties into, I'm glad Bruce mentioned it earlier, talking about, you know, um, obviously sometimes moms are just um, people performing like the responsibility of uh, motherhood for some period of time. And it's not a long period of time in this movie, but I think it's an impactful one. And uh, that's uh, Janelle Monet in uh, Moonlight um, kind of um, being a, a mother type figure to um, uh, Chiron in that movie, I think, because uh, obviously his actual mom in that movie is a, a terrible mother. Um, but um, Janelle Monet's character is like very um, empathetic and very like understanding and actually imparts some uh, wisdom and that's all you can hope for in a parental figure. So that was my last pick there. Well, and men can be good mothers too. You know, I, and we've seen that in, in films, look at even something like where Robin Williams plays Mrs. Doubtfire and becomes kind of the, the mother figure, if you will, even though Robin Williams was a man playing a woman, learning about being a better man because he was playing a woman or whatever that line is that they use in Tootsie. Um, yeah, but you know what's interesting is how actresses quickly move into this, this period of motherhood. Um, they aren't ingenue very long. In fact, we'll be seeing Amanda Seyfried pretty soon playing a mother in something, I'm sure. Uh, because for some reason, Hollywood likes to have young wives and then the mother can't be that old. So then they give the, the mother, I mean, where do you go? Uh, a classic example of that is Sally Field in Forrest Gump, where she was just a handful of years older than uh, Tom Hanks, but yet she was playing his mother. Part of that though, was they, so she could be the well, mother when he was a kid. Years. And then they, they added a whole bunch of old lady makeup for the, the other stuff. But I, I see what you're saying. And I mean, the, the point is certainly, <laughs> certainly stands. Yeah, men get to be much, um, they can be old and still seen as attractive. Whereas if a woman gets old, she's seen as old. And that's really wrong. That, that shouldn't be that way. Because I think there are a lot of good stories that we're missing. I think we learned that this last couple of years with all of the um, Asian films that showed us there are great story ideas that are floating around there that we're not landing on. And it's because we've just closed our, our minds to other, other resources. And it's the same way with this. If they would be covering that kind of period of time where people are maybe in their 
50s, 60s, and 70s, there might be really cool stories to tell that we just don't see because they don't think they're marketable. One one movie, it, I guess not quite 50s and 60s, but one movie that like kind of had a little bit of that vibe to me, and it's it, one I really love, and I've talked about how big of a fan of um, Philip Seymour Hoffman I am, but was a uh, movie Savages with him, and um, I can't remember... Well, like- was that the Laura Linney yeah, one? It was, yeah. And like that seemed like a good template for like almost like coming of like middle age type movies where like neither one of them are like, if I remember correctly, neither one of them are parents in that movie or like really have a lot going on necessarily, but they're still like living a, you know, perfectly like decent life and everything like that. And yeah, there's not really a market for that type of uh, movie. Yeah, there's a whole period where you become your parents' parent for lack of a better term. Um, and you don't know how to deal with it because you don't, you're so busy, you just expect that your parents are gonna be okay. And they're gonna be doing their own thing and they're always gonna be with it and they'll know what to do. And it becomes a point where they rely on you for help, but they don't wanna admit that they're letting their child run their life. And I think there are a lot of good stories there that could be told. It's just, who's telling them? Because they look at that and they say, oh, nobody wants to see that movie. That movie's dumb. And I think it would be gr- very educational because I've been through that period and I found hugely good story ideas, funny story ideas that could be mined just from my own experiences. Um, but I, I, until we get an aging, and maybe it's the baby boomers getting older, that might be the thing that crack th- will crack that open and let us see more of those kinds of films. But who knows? One completely random thing that I've got is how many characters are named mother? Like, I mean, like I, like I'm thinking of, I know mother jugs and speed from 76, a ridiculous film. Uh, I mean, it's so 76 that Raquel Welch's character's name is jugs. Um, and uh, Bill Cosby plays Mother. Yeah, well, in Ragtime, the character is just known as Mother. And the people refer to her as Mother. So, and there are many other films like that where that's what it is. You know, I in, in Room, what did they call the mother there? The Brie Larson part? I think it was just Ma. You see? And then depend, I think how, what you call, if it's Mommy, if it's Mom, if it's Mother, um, those lend a little bit of, I don't know, rank or how your family is established. Um, And then you'll find men calling their wives mommy, not unlike Ronald Reagan. Um, But, you you know, so it's, it's a weird kind of a situation. I don't know. We'd like to bring you in for the role of mother. It's so good to see you, Cardi B. We're trying to get this this off the ground and we think you could really play, but we are holding our options open because we have Lizzo coming in later this afternoon. You know, I mean, come on. Quick, we've got Animal Mother from Full Metal Jacket, played by Adam Baldwin. No relation to the Baldwins. No. Well, I mean, the much better known Baldwins. Um, Dan Aykroyd in Sneakers, which we've talked about in the past. Um, I am drawn a complete blank on 
who was it that was mother in Alien? Or like Alien or mother was the computer, right? Yeah. Okay. And yeah, and the rest is like a whole bunch of nuns. So <laughs> don't forget to, Chris, you're forgetting Big Mama. <laughs> That's right. Martin Lawrence, because that's that's what he goes by the whole movie when he's undercover is Big Mama. And, you know, he's got the whole house and everything. And sequel. His Ma. Had that, house for, had that house for several movies. Ma. Oh, yeah, Ma. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Ma Rainey's Black go. Bottom. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're cooking with gas, guys. Yes. So, yeah. Do you guys have anything fun planned for, for Mother's Day or no? No, my no. mother dead, so I can't do anything fun on Mother's Day. She wouldn't like that anyway. She's like, no, we're not doing this. We're going out to eat. I'm not cooking. That was my mom. Yeah, we always knew we'd get brunch on Mother's Day. That was a good thing. Nice. Better way to do it. I just have actually, you... go ahead. No, I was just gonna ask, have you seen anything new that you liked? Anything new that I liked? Um, I have been pretty much like on a reading tear ever since we moved on from from Oscar stuff. No I've more really not watched that. No, no, I, I believe it or not, have not yet watched more combat. And today opens uh, here today um, with Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish. And really, you know what it is? It's the father, but it's the father light, really light. And he's entering into dementia and she becomes his caregiver and she has to help him through these times. Interesting, um, you see glimpses in it of a better Tiffany Haddish and you see a very old school Billy Crystal hanging on to what he used to think was humor. Billy Crystal. Oh boy. Man, I I only recently just watched uh analyze this for the first time. And that was like a time capsule because I was watching that and just like, wow, people really this was like one of the funniest movies when this came out in 1999 or whatever. And I maybe laughed like three times that whole movie. You know, it's weird how humor can really age well or really age badly. It, it, there is no kind of middle ground. Like Tootsie, I think I mentioned that earlier. Tootsie is one that ages really well. You can watch that now and you laugh and you think this was very clever for the times. And then you look at something that was even released last year and you go, oh my God, who thought this was funny? And the ultimate uh, example of something you might not think would hold up, but still holds up is Blazing Saddles. Oh, Mel Brooks stuff. You look at all those old ones. And at the time, they may have been kind of like, oh, groaners. And yet you realize now that was clever. That was with Cloris Leachman willing to do just anything in a lot of those movies. Madeline Kahn, you don't get better than Madeline Kahn. And she was screwed. She should have gotten at least one Oscar for one of those supporting performances because she just shines in everything. She was great in What's Up, Doc. She was great in... Um, Blazing Saddle. She was great in uh, Paper Young Frankenstein. Moon. Young Frankenstein. She's just, it's, she's so, so good. And they don't like comedy. That's the thing about the Oscars. They really, 
you know, if it's a comedic performance, eh, we're going to think twice about it. Yeah. How about you guys? Anything, uh, anything good on the, uh, on the radar? I, uh, I watched, uh, get to see nobody, uh, last weekend. And that was a, uh, a lot of fun. Uh, I, I mean, I love Bob Odenkirk and it's just hilarious seeing him as like an action guy now. And I will say like, uh, I know the kind of shorthand for that movie was that it was basically just John Wick with Bob Odenkirk, but like it was a, because it had Bob Odenkirk, it was way funnier and had like a lighter touch to it than the John Wick movies do, which I also love, but like totally just a very different kind of thing than the John Wick movies. So I dug that a lot. And then uh, I've been reading a bunch and then I've also been watching through all of the show um, on cinema, which I don't know, uh, Chris, have you seen that? I know of it. I, and I have, I have seen some of on cinema in the various permutations which you can uh, consume on cinema, be it a podcast, be it um, the, the YouTube stuff, uh, the, the feature film. <laughs> that, a, that's a four, a four hour fake trial. Um, yeah, uh, Bruce, are you familiar with On Cinema at all? Yes. Okay, yeah, it, I, I, it's been fun watching it. And then it also, I feel like it's gonna just like make me be better about avoiding as many cliches as, as possible when talking about movies because the joy of watching the show and what makes it so funny is like the characters that like Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington are playing, like they're just like the worst version of like movie critics possible. They don't know any of the movies they're talking about. They give everything five bags of popcorn. They flub names like left and right. It's just, it's so funny to watch. It's just like the perfect parody of like the worst parts of like uh, film criticism culture and just like pop culture criticism in general. You know, I miss Siskel and Ebert because they were really good at, at distilling a lot of these things and they could get right to the, the heart of what they wanted to say about a film, which is difficult to do sometimes. Um, and we don't have that now. Now it's, again, we go back to the, I can't even believe that that kind of school of, of criticism where they really don't look at everything and say, you know, maybe the lighting was wrong. Maybe that's what it was. That isn't it at all. It's just my gut instinct or if I feel offended somehow. That's a real, a real big trope that we see in, criticism these days is somehow I have been just ruined by having been to this movie and please thus you get Paddington 2 as the top movie in the Rotten Tomatoes list it's a fantastic film I will say that I loved Paddington 2 I did much better than Paddington 1 much better than Paddington 1 and Paddington yeah. 1 was a another great film I thought yeah, but two is better. And I think a lot of that was because of um, uh, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant made it kind of interesting. But, you know, really, is this where we have to dig? Do we have to dig to a kid's film to, to find something of quality these days? No, no. I think we need to, we need to raise the bar. Come on. And I'm, I'm shocked at all of the religious films I'm seeing in theaters now is this like some way that they think that they're going to spread religion or something is by putting it in a film i find that just absurd but you look at theaters they're in a lot of theaters right now faith-based films and there's nothing wrong with them but when they're really heavy-handed and you're thinking hmm somebody's trying to do something here i 
I tap out. Can I, I know that you don't. I mean, one thing before we, you know, I guess get past that, maybe one thing about the, the religious films, and I don't know if this has anything to do, like how far, like how long they were in the pipeline, whatever. But I mean, I know theaters are having a hard time getting people to come back, which is understandable, but the communities in America that are, are known for being less concerned about, you know, masking and vaxxing and things like that are evangelical conservatives. I mean, that's, that's just a, that's not me making any judgments. That's just, that's a mathematical or, you know, demographical fact at this point, I believe. So, um, I mean, that's, if you're looking to, to fill theaters with people that are willing to come back, and I, I don't know how, you know, cynical the producers maybe are, but yeah. So that's, that's my, that was the first thing that came, came to my mind. Okay. Well, there are a lot of them out there. I think though, they all kind of go along the same path for everything. And um, I think you can find religious messages in films that don't even strive for it. You look at something like Minari, for example, a really great film about family, about love, um, about holding people up in times that are really difficult. And I get more religious messages out of something like that than something that hits me over the head because a kid fell in the ice and suddenly blacked out for two hours. And then they suddenly say he has a religious conversion. Nah, I'm not there for that. So damn me to hell if that's the case. But I just want to know that I, I think movies can be smarter. I don't think we need to, to pander. And I think that they can be, and, I, and that's why I think we're looking at foreign films more because they are taking those risks and we're not. Um, can I tell you about a TV show that I, I binged? I binged all of the episodes I had because it's so fun and it's so good. And it's called Hacks. And it stars Jean Smart as a stand-up comedian. She's in Las Vegas and she's kind of one of those ones that have been in, in Vegas a little too long, you know, where she's doing the same joke she did 10 years ago. And her manager says, you know, you got to bring somebody in that's got a little life and knows something about today. No, I'm not going to do that. She really resists. And they bring in a writer, a young writer who has a totally different sensibility than she does. And the two butt heads the whole time. And it is so fun because it talks about the differences that we have in generations and yet really how much alike we are. And Jean Smart is so, so good at this. Um, I hope she wins every award next year that she's the, the uh, Catherine O'Hara of the next year because she's that good. I hope so. And she also can pull off- uh, Drama. She's in Town, and she's great in that. I was going to say Watchmen, but- um, Watchmen. Yeah. Uh, Fargo. She was yep, great. Great in that. Fargo. Yep. Yeah. She, she doesn't- um, she doesn't slip up and she does admit that, you know, she's lucky. She's getting these great parts at an older age when they may have dismissed an actress of her age. And uh, I'm so thrilled to see her get something really good like, but you will love it. You will love it because you see all of that kind of, that kind of angst that we see among generations. It's perfect. Perfect. And interesting, the woman who plays her, the writer who comes in, is the real life daughter of Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live, the original Saturday Night Live. And I wish I could remember her name right now, but I can't. And that is on HBO Max. HBO Max. It, it premieres yeah. next yeah. week. 
mm-hmm. next Thursday, it looks like. Yeah, uh, and I've seen seven episodes of it. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, from the uh, same production team of Broad City. So yeah, fantastic. That is, I'm really looking forward to that. All right. So we've got, go see something good. we got hacks. Go see something good with, with your mom if you can. But hey, be nice to your mom and take your mom to the movie. My mother hated the movies. She would never, I, it always would be dad would go with the movies with me. And mom would say, no, I'm going to stay home and iron. And you think, what? You have the option of going to the movies and eating popcorn and drinking pop? No, you go to the movies. But she didn't like it. Um, she would go occasionally with us. And, but dad was always my movie goer. And um, there was, I took her to the, uh, the movie, The Sterile Cuckoo with, it was a, it was a um, Liza Minnelli film early in her career, around the time of Cabaret. And one of the lines that she used in there was, do you want to peel a tomato? And Liza Minnelli was just actually asking this guy if he wanted to take her clothes off. Well, you would have thought the world had ended right then when my mom heard that. You want to peel a tomato. We aren't watching this crap. Mom was not brought into the movie world as much as we maybe think we should have. So whenever you hear you want to peel a tomato, think of my mother. A great note to end on. So that is the end of the episode. You can check out the show notes for links to where you can stream the movies we talked about. You can discover older episodes and find ways to contact Bruce, Jared, and myself as well if you want. Next time you hear from us, we will be celebrating the 10th anniversary of Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive. The show is produced by myself, Bruce, and Jared, and I'm the one who records and edits it. We hope you enjoy the show and are taking care of yourself out there. As always, thank you so much for listening.